Welcome back to the Buena Vista Recovery Podcast. Um, I'm sitting here with Bob Cording. Bob, how you doing? I'm well. And we have our special guest from our Tatum campus, um, the executive director, Miss Veronica Frash. How are you, Veronica? Good, really good. Good. Welcome, uh, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. Um, Bob? We're going to, uh, how's everybody doing? Good. Frankie? I'm, I'm blessed, man. Blessed, man. It's, uh, it's been a great month. Um, overdue for some golf. I just got over COVID. Um, I just came back Monday after a 14-day quarantine in my room. Um, I'm grateful to be back. I feel about 65%. So Down about 20 pounds? Uh, 12. 12, okay. Yeah. Baby steps. Feeling good. I'm up about 12, so I know I took it off for you. You look good, brother. Thanks, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, today we're going to get into Veronica's story, so we appreciate you being here with us. Um, tell us what it was like growing up, childhood, into your teen years. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Um, so I am one of five girls. Um, I grew up mainly with my older sister in Phoenix. Um, and I, I grew up in a family that was like really strong in um, like feminine activity. Um, my mom is a really strong force in my life. Um, and yeah, so she was a really strong force in my life and, and always pushed me and my sister to be really independent women. Um, and when we were young, we went into this school that was pretty alternative in education. So there were, just like an example, um, we called all our teachers by the first name. We didn't have consequences. Um, so when I would do things out of like anger or frustration, there wasn't a, like I didn't have um, repercussions. The, uh, the consequences looked like me going to the principal's house to bake a cake and have extra like hours in the garden I'd have to learn how to do a new craft like weaving. And it was really um, just a kind of a direction of like, you're acting up in this way. Let's utilize that passion uh, for something artistic. Um, and so that, that kind of carries like throughout my whole story is that I didn't have consequences. And the consequences that I did have, I was okay with. Um, and that was really prevalent through how um, substance use disorder accelerated in my life and the and the first thing that I craved was was power and control and I got that through like fear so like my first friend growing up she was friends with me because she was afraid of what I would do if she wasn't friends with me and so like I thrived in like anger and rage um, and that was like really kind of the first thing that I was addicted to was like the um, the power of influencing others into fear to be able to get whatever I wanted. And so that's a, another theme that I've carried throughout how substance use disorder accelerated in my life. And we're going to like high school, right? Yeah. All the way up? All the way up. <laughs> um, so that was, a, that was a school program all the way through middle school, right? So I was with the same 40 kids from like two years old to the age of 14. And most of them went to private high schools. And my family wasn't, uh, we just, we didn't have that kind of money. Um, my mom was a single mom for uh, quite a while. 
and I went to a public high school, and I was culture, like, rocked. Uh, no idea how to, like, have any type of consequences or coping skills. Uh, the anger and rage and power did not suffice in that setting. Um, and there was a point where I was kicked out of the science department, so I wasn't allowed to take biology or chemistry or any of those credits for high school and still somehow graduated. Um, yeah, I, I got in a lot of trouble in high school, and that was really when it kicked off. It was my first day of high school, and I had already been like drinking and experimenting with drugs. Um, but high school on my first day, I had never ridden like a school bus before. So I walked to the end of the street, which was like a mile, and waited for the bus, and there was somebody there, and I was like, how do I do this? And she's like, what? I was like, how do I get on the bus? She's like, you just get on, and then you get off at your school. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be terrible. So the next day, I brought like vodka with me, because that brought me a sense of like ease and comfort, and I felt like I could kind of just relax. Um, and I utilized like drinking and, and your other things that were available in high school all throughout. Um, it was really towards the end of high school that things got pretty, pretty dark. There was a point that I just, I wasn't coming home. Um, I didn't want to be home. And I ended up treating my mom in a way that I never thought that I would be able to treat her. And that like anger and rage, like when I'm not at that time, like when I'm not under the influence, I'm really angry. Um, and I'm angry until I can get that next, next bit in my body. And I took it out on my family. And that night I packed up all my stuff and my mom was crying and I was 17. Um, and I left. And I lived uh, in New River, which is, has its nice places, but I didn't live in a nice place. Um, and finished high school living out of my car. And then at one point I was in, um, in the Home Depot parking lot. You know those sheds, the demo shred, the sheds that they have? Yeah, so I would, um, people started like messing with my car when I was sleeping in it. Um, people in high school knew that I was living out of my car. So I would leave my car empty and pack up a bag and a sleeping bag and one of those like styrofoam coolers. And I would go into the shed and I would sleep in there. This is all at 17. Yeah, it was all at 17. I realized kind of a little bit before that, like at 16, 17, that my family had unconditional love for me, which gave me the permission to abuse them um, until it got like, until it got to a point where it scared me. And I was like, I don't want to do this. Like I saw so many of my friends just destroy their families, and I didn't want to do that to mine. So I thought the, the best solution was to leave. Um, now, thinking back on it, right, and like I have an incredible relationship with my mom, um, but I, I like it wasn't any more peaceful for her. She had no idea if I was dead or alive. I was still going to school because I didn't want to be a high school dropout. Um, and I had some really awesome influences. I had a teacher that um, asked me to stay after class and tried to get me to kind of talk about what was going on. And she actually let me live with her for a little bit too. Yeah, I was always the kid that teachers wanted to help. They saw, and it was like my least favorite word for such a long time, the P word, potential. Because I didn't, I didn't ever see it. 
So you're homeless, 17 years old, living out of your car. <laughs> yeah. What happened next? Um, so I managed to graduate high school somehow with no science credits, which is beyond my understanding. I had to sign a form that I, once I graduated, was no longer allowed to be on the high school property, um, which I have abided to this whole time. <laughs> um, yeah, and then I was then I was done. I was like, I'm turning 18. Like I like I'm I decided to go to San Francisco because I thought that was where all the free people went, and so I packed a bag and I went to San Francisco and. I didn't think I was ever going to go to college. I was just happy to get through high school. And my mom, the amazing woman that she is, um, helped put in an app. She applied, right? She applied to NAU. So I had the ability to go in, and that was kind of my only option. I had a terrible GPA in high school. Um, but I didn't want to go to college. Um, I, like I said, like school was not my jam at yeah, all. I get it. <laughs> Same way. And San Francisco was awesome. I lived in San Francisco for three months. Uh, and I was surrounded with a bunch of young people that were like working and like high finance. I lived at a hostel um, at the top floor. So you like would open the doors and you would be on the roof and it was in the financial district. And so we would have like barbecues and we would be like dancing in our swimsuits and all these people like working in the financial district and it, it was it was really fun and I love San Francisco it's an awesome city but when I was there I was surrounded with people that were like doing things with their life or like traveling the world um, and they weren't like just you know like scraping by and one of the individuals like really encouraged me to like make something of myself and they were a, a pretty big impact on like me coming back to Arizona and um, and doing something different. Yeah, so I came back to Arizona and took advantage of the uh, the application that my mom submitted to NAU. And things were gonna be different, right? Like every like I'm gonna change everything. I'm gonna change where I live. I'm gonna cut my hair. Um, I'm going to be a different person. I'm going to be this great, like, college student. Uh, I'm going to stay away from everything that I knew and make something of myself. And, like, I broke up with a boyfriend that I had all through high school. Um, even that time in San Francisco. And went up there. And that night that I went up for school, I ended up in the hospital. And, uh... Yeah, that's what like totally blew my mind. Like I had no idea, I had, yeah, I had no idea about substance use disorder, no idea about alcoholism. My family never talked about that. We don't have it in our family. I didn't see my parents get like inebriated or use drugs. If anything, they were like anti-drug and um, they would drink on occasion and for holidays. Um, so it wasn't really around me. And so I, I really thought like at that point, that I made that like complete decision, like change of heart, like meant it to my core, like changed everything externally and implanted myself in a whole nother city. And there I was like in the hospital again. What had, like what, what took you to the hospital? Where, where are you at this point in your life? So I ended up getting up to Flagstaff. I reached out to an old high school friend because they had moved to Flagstaff. 
Um, and when we went to we went to go hang out and yeah, so that night she got arrested. Uh, she got arrested for um, like distribution and um, gosh, I can't remember what else it was. Uh, they were they were trying to charge her with my overdose because um, she had the substances on her um, that happened to be like the same type of substances I was using. And yeah, so I, I mean, I, I came to you at the hospital, took my IV out. They gave me a bus ticket and a blanket because they cut my clothes off. So I have all those sticky things all over myself. It's also my first day of college and I'm like sitting on the bus like naked under a hospital blanket, like trying to figure out where I'm going in the new town and still made it to class. And that was like something I always held on to, like I will be in class. And my mama always said the best students sit in the first row. So I would be like inebriated, I would be nodded out, I would be like unconscious, and I was always in the first row. So it was like terrible, you know, like good students should sit in the front row, like absolutely. Um, but they should also, you know, pay attention. So it was, it was very obvious that I wasn't going to do well in college. <laughs> I get it. I mean, that's my story, too. I went to college. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Went for three years, failed every semester. College dropout. And I mean, I think that's the amazing part, and that's what we're going to get into. But your redemption story, your coming to getting sober, what that looked like, your role that you play in this huge company and the impact that you make with all these lives. Um, how'd you get sober? Yeah, a series of fortunate events. Um, I had a couple more visits to the hospital. Um, I, uh, you know, they, they gave me opportunities at the hospital to go upstairs, and, and upstairs was a psychiatric facility, and I didn't think that I needed that. Um, I started giving, like, fake IDs at the hospital. I started realizing that if I went to the hospital with a fake ID, they would rehydrate me so I wouldn't feel like crap in the morning. And then, um, and then eventually they sent the cops. And... Um, there was like a DUI in there. Um, my boyfriend was murdered. I lost a bunch of friends. And I and I wanted to just, I wanted to be done. And probation was a huge, uh, a huge driver in me getting introduced to the community that I'm, that I'm close in today. Um, and so when I got sober, I got sober in Flagstaff. And it's a, it's, I mean, it's a really small, at that time, it was a small town. There was really only the hospital. There was the social detox, like an hour away, and then the guidance center. Um, but they weren't, like, treatment wasn't, wasn't available. I went the Suboxone route for a little while. Um, but, like, the staying sober part was really tough. And it took, it took me getting to a point where I was, where I was miserable, um, other ways out didn't work, um, and I just I didn't want to do it anymore. I had been influenced by people that were that were sober that lived very similar to me. Um, you know, I served my time in jail. Um, you know, I went through the the trial of 
of my partner and I just didn't want to do it. It was just miserable. And what made it tough was that like, I didn't know how to get what all these other people had. Like they, like I got to see them like get like three years sober and two years sober. And I was still like two to three days in. And it was about like the, um, the influences. Like then I started asking like, I, I don't know what to do. Like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do every day. And so they told me to go to this place and to stay until I felt okay. And so I would go to this place and I would sit there and I would sit there all day and people would like take me home and I would cook with their kids and I'd help clean their house. And, you know, like this whole community kind of just wrapped me up and, and like held me through that process of like getting my sanity back and getting my self-worth back that that that's really what it was was like the attraction and I know that there's um I've, I've heard a couple other people like share their story that they that they met people that were that they once used with that were sober and they were using and they met them and they were sober and it was like you, you start to believe it right and so like that was that girl that got charged um she ended up getting sober and I believed it. I believed that something worked for her and and maybe that maybe I could get it too. And what helped was that like I was miserable. <laughs> yeah. That was like a huge driver, like being miserable enough and in enough pain. Um, you have one of two ways to go. Well, you have two ways to go, right? And one way it didn't work, so I might as well try to invest in the other. What keeps you motivated today, staying sober? What does that look like? What does your day-to-day look like today, staying sober? Um, my day-to-day staying sober, I mean, so I, I'm going to have nine years sober uh, in February, which is pretty unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, so I got sober when I was 22. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I was I was on fire for it. Like, once I had a little bit of, like, like you can go anywhere that you want and you're not going to end up in jail and you're not going to end up in a fight like that like that type of freedom was so amazing i saw people doing like really amazing things and i thought like why not i like why can't i be able to do that um right now like the relationships that i have in my life are incredible and i think that was really a big part of it like when I was using, I cut everyone out of my life. And that was like easier to like self-sabotage because I was just, you know, hurting myself. So I thought, right. Um, but the relationships that I have with my sisters, the relationships that I have with my biological father and the like just the extended family that has surrounded me in my recovery is awesome. Like how I get to show up for people today is really cool. And that I, that I want to do more. I want to be more like that's attractive to me. Like before I was just trying to live, but which is like an oxymoron because I'm yeah. using something that's going to kill you. me quicker. Yeah. yeah. What else you want to talk about as far as your story? Yeah. So, I mean, so the, the word like potential was, like I brought up in the beginning, like that was always a word that like disgusted me, um, you know. And and today I think that's a that's a word that kind of inspires me. That there's there's so many things beyond 
um, beyond me that I'm excited for. Like I said, like I barely got through high school, like somehow made it through college. That was one thing that I, I didn't want to be a dropout. Like I thought that made me not an alcoholic or a drug addict if I stayed in school. Um, you know, and, and last, like this year was my first year going for my master's. And I like never thought that I would ever do something like that. Like I was so done with school, yet here I am, you know, one year down and a four-year master's. And I think that's, I think that's really cool. And and that's something that I see too with with people that are like new in recovery or or in a you know they get to this like plateau in their sobriety, and they get like this like this position where they are like content but don't grow and they're not challenging themselves anymore and they're not trying new things anymore and they just they get content and like okay and like I want that type of peace and contentment but I also want to be like challenged and I think that that's something that's also like helped me hold on to my recovery is continuing continuing to be challenged yeah I mean I believe that big time too I think I mean, I always say either we're growing or we're dying, you know, and I think that's not a me thing. That's a universal thing with the life we live. Uh, because what's amazing to me, and it's, and our stories are all so similar, but your story, how you grew up, what happened throughout your charter school, into high school, homeless at 17, addicted to drugs and alcohol, nine years sober today, coming up. And what you do for the world. Like the impact that you have. Like what were you doing right before you came here? I was at the clinic. <laughs> you were at the clinic and then yeah. what did you do after the clinic? Before you got here? Oh, that I went to the hospital? Yeah. Yeah. It's little things today that I look at at how we can show up for people. And that's what you do every day. And like that's not who you were at 17. Like, to me, it's it's that little stuff. It's the, I shared it with you first thing this morning. It's why we do what we do, you know? Like, that's, it's those moments, those little moments in every day that we can take a step back. And when we really look at where we were 5, 10, 15 years ago and the way that we get to show up today. I mean, that's my piece, you know? That's That's the beauty in it. Yeah, I can. I completely agree. It because it it was about the people that showed up for me, you know, and being able to take on that, because it because it's impactful. Like if you are able to do something, like every day to help someone feel loved or important, like it could be really small or it could be grandiose. And I had I had a lot of people do that. I kind of skipped a part when I was nineteen. I also I'm a runner, so when things get challenging, I run. Um, so when I was 19, I actually, I started hitchhiking across country and there was a woman that picked me up and she was a nun and she had a minivan, which I thought was interesting. I didn't know that nuns were able to drive and, um, she picked me up outside like a Taco Bell and she took me to Walmart and bought me like new underwear, new socks, some snacks. She gave me a roll of quarters so I could wash the clothes in my backpack and then took me to a hotel and never once like pushed anything biblical on me at all. Like she was just out there being a service to somebody. 
And I thought that was like, I thought that was really cool. There was a lot of people that, that showed up that just wanted to do like random acts of kindness. So when you see those people on the side of the road that are asking for money, I mean, even one point, that was before I got sober, right? Yeah. Hitchhiking the country. Um, yeah, but there was like one point where like it hit me, right? And like hitchhiking cross country with no money, um, you know, like I would put myself in positions to manipulate people to get money so that I could get what I wanted. Um, was uh, It just started to feel like really gross. And there was like a thing, it's, it's called hippie napping. Have you ever heard of that? No. I know, it's a, it's a weird term. Um, and so it was like this, this way of like using people and right, like that's, that's what I started to do. Like I cut out the people that cared about me and I started looking for people that I could use, right? Like that power and control. And so hippie napping is like, like being young and wearing like a bandana as a t-shirt and going to music festivals um, and being a woman like made it really easy to do. And so at these music festivals, you would meet like young kids that had money and jobs and cars and you would convince them um, you would convince them like don't you want to live free like let's have a let's have an adventure and they have a bank account and they have money um and so you would convince them to like leave their family and make sure that they're 18 you would get in their car you convince them to drive you wherever you want to go you would drain them of all their money and then you would leave them and they would not know how to like hitchhike or travel on their own and they're out of money and yeah it was really it was really awful um but that's some of the stuff too. Like that's also like what plays in my mind when I don't want to do something for somebody today and I want to be self-absorbed. Um, you know, like I have to make up for lost time because I I did I didn't do some I did some pretty mean things to people, um, especially that one. Like, can you imagine yeah. like some girl just stealing your kid at a music festival and taking them cross country and then abandoning them in Flint, Michigan? Like that's that's gross. Yeah. That's <laughs> where addiction takes us. Yeah. Yeah. Veronica, if you were to sit down with your 17-year-old self today, what would you say to her? That is a really tough question. Because um, I don't, I don't, at 17, like I, it was like me against the world. And I don't think I would have listened to me now. <laughs> um, but I probably would have told myself, to hang in there. I mean, did you have an intuition at 17 that told you you're probably doing the wrong thing? I had an intuition that life was going to be really tough. Um, and that, like, it was told to me when at a young age that I had a dark cloud over my head and, like, where bad things went, there I was. And so, like, I believed that and I wore that like a badge of honor. Happy. <laughs> similar experience yeah. and it was like that that question and it, sometimes people use it in interviews and they're like where do you see yourself in five years like I always hated that question I'm like I'm not going to be alive in five years like I am running and gunning and trying to hold on and trying to like just get to where I want to get um, but like five years like doesn't exist like there's no way that I would make it five years Veronica we appreciate your time and your story um, 
Bob, thanks for, you know, coming through today, brother. And until next time, you guys uh, take care of each other and love each other. Thanks.